will you read this together with me? The purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And let's go on to Discipline 1. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the Word of God and in particular, the gospel. Well, today we're going to talk about heart shepherding, and it's an ongoing discipline. It takes discipline to have a mind that is set and focused on God and his word throughout the entire day. We need to read the Bible prayerfully and then extend what we've read into our life so that we are thinking biblically as we live out our day so that we truly do live gospel-transformed lives. Ladies, the gospel brought near our hearts will change everything about us. Our intimacy with God will be deepened. And because we know God more deeply and understand the love he has for us, our affections for him will grow for sure. And the way we act and the way we think and the way that we interact with others will change. Our lives will be transformed by his gospel. Heart shepherding takes discipline because without being careful to keep our eyes on Jesus, paying attention to our hearts, we are all in danger of wandering. And that might sound benign. We say that a lot. But wandering is very, very serious to our spiritual condition. One doesn't wake one morning and decide, today's the day that I'm going to fall into great sin. Sin is in the heart. And left unchecked, it grows. And soon a thought of discontentment and pleasing oneself grows and grows to more grievous sins. Sin happens in progression, and if left to ourselves, it will happen, and it will be big. The Word of God is His provision for our hearts and for our need. It's our final authority, and we're going to look into that much more today. How about discipline two? The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with their heart fixed on God and His Word. Whether you have a household of people or you live by yourself, you and I are responsible for making sure that we have a heart for God and for the gospel in our homes. There ought to be an aroma of Christ in our home noticed by those who enter it. And she ministers. She ministers means to attend to, to care for, look after, to help and assist. Discipline 2 tells us this ministering to those in her household is motivated by rooted in her own heart for God. The pursuit of Christ brings about this ministering to others. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For Christ's love compels us. To be compelled is to be highly motivated. We're to be motivated by Christ's love for us. And where do we learn of his love? Where do we see his love demonstrated for us? It's in the gospel realities. And so often we get the cart before the horse. Just tell me what to do, and I'm going to do it. It must be Christ's love first and foremost that motivates us. Then we become the woman of God. We become a faithful woman, and then we do. Then we obey his commands. But we must be compelled by his love first. And discipline three, together, with a heart fixed on God, and keeping her God-given ministry within her home for 
the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God in the gospel. Every woman who is focused on consistent heart shepherding will have a valuable and irreplaceable role in the body of Christ, in the body of Grace Bible Church. The woman who has been feasting on God and his word has something to say to others. The woman is helpful and useful for the church body. God's word equips us to deal with daily circumstances according to his ways. We will surely experience stresses, temptations, emotions, and hard things in our day, but those experiences will not undo us, and they won't make us drift off course because we're able to think rightly about God, our Father, our Master, our Shepherd, and we're going to think rightly about our circumstances. This takes talking to myself with God's truth. I can't listen to myself. It's easy to let our feelings rule. We can listen to ourselves and our constantly changing feelings about circumstances, or we can talk to ourselves informing our hearts about the unchanging truth of our God, of who he is. He is unchanging, and what he's accomplished for us. Do you remember at the beginning of the year, I think it's our first lesson, Scott shared with us the need to build ourselves up in the word, but also the body. So we build ourselves up during our time with the Lord, and then we connect with other believers, and God supplies power through our building up, and the church is strengthened. That's discipline three. I want to pray again before we actually get into our lesson, the rest of our lesson. Oh God, we thank you that though our hearts were filled with sin, desperately wicked, you have provided a way. You have sent Jesus. The good news is that you have sent Jesus to live and to die and to be raised again and now to live. And he intercedes for us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that takes your mind and your heart and translates that to us. I pray that the Holy Spirit would do his mighty work in us this morning, that you would take these words that I have prepared uh, right with you, and I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would um, take this and make it all that you have. You are sufficient, God, and you are sufficient to meet our every need, and this morning we need you. We need you to take these words and to... Um, apply them to our hearts and our minds, that we might be changed, that we might live gospel-transformed lives. I pray that when we leave this morning that we might have a better understanding what this heart shepherding is. Again, God, we come under your word. We want to learn from you. You are our teacher, and you delight. Your banner over us is love. And God, we want to make much of you this morning. We love you, and we want others to know, and we want to live in a way that honors you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're looking at the discipline of shepherding our hearts. So if you got to listen to that online before, or maybe just a a review, it's been a while, I thought it'd be necessary for us to get a better picture of why it's necessary that we even shepherd our hearts. So we're going to do a quick overview to refresh our minds. By understanding God's evaluation of the heart, we position ourselves to benefit from his word as he has designed for us. It's just one of the ways that he cares for us. What is the heart? Another thing on the beginning of your uh, the overview, I didn't want to leave anything out here on the overview of the heart, 
but we won't touch everything this morning because that's another whole lesson. So I'm going to hit parts of it and just know you can go back and listen online if you'd like the rest of that lesson. The heart is the inner man. It's the inner person. It's you. It's you in totality. It sums up who you are, inwardly speaking. We have the outer man, the physical part, and we have the inner man, the heart. The heart is the place which God reveals himself to us first and foremost. The heart is the part of us that is addressed by God. It's where we are evaluated by God. The heart is the seat of doubt and hardness, and it's also the seat of faith and obedience. It is the center of our emotions, our thoughts, our will, Again, it's the center of who you are. So every, every, every word, thought, desire, will, emotion, deed comes from the heart. We find much about the heart in scripture. In Genesis 6 and 8, we see that man's heart is evil. The word gives a description here. God gives us the account of Noah's ark and God's plan to destroy the earth with a flood. I'm looking from Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. I'll give you a minute to get there. Genesis 6, 5. Again, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. God is saying that every intent of the thoughts of the heart, any intention, any planned purpose in his heart, that nothing that didn't have wickedness and evil saturating it. So in that one sentence, do you see every, only, continually? Man's wickedness is primarily a heart problem. So the flood comes in in chapter 6 and 7, and it subsides in chapter 8. So they come off the boat the ark. And now flip over to Genesis 8, 20 through 21. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. Noah came off the ark and worshiped God. And he took every, one of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So here we see, during a moment of worship, God stating again what he said in Genesis 6. What's true of the human race before the flood? That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So now there are only eight people on the face of the whole earth and he's saying, as you worship me, as you come off the boat, there's still a problem. Man's heart is still evil. And the point is that the judgment of the flood did not fix man's heart problem. And we go on in Jeremiah 17:9, and it says, The heart is deceitful above all things. And to deceive, as we know, is to lead astray. It's to betray by giving false information to so the heart is easily led astray, even when following God and obeying him. 
Listen to Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I'm pure from my sin? Well, the obvious answer is no one. It's a rhetorical question. It's according to God. The stain of man's heart is so great, we don't possess what it takes to cleanse it, to purify it. The heart is beyond our ability to cleanse ourselves. And in Matthew 15, I'm going to let you look that up too later, the source of defilement within a person is his own heart. And so we've seen that the heart is evil and deceitful above all things and beyond our ability to cleanse it. That's what God says about my heart, about the heart. So when the world tells us to follow our heart, like Jamie told us, it doesn't sound like wisdom at all. It isn't wisdom at all. But God has provided for our hearts. He had a plan. God saw the wickedness of man, and he had a plan from the very beginning. The whole of Scripture, from the beginning and the end, lays out his plan for mankind. And I love this chart hope you're using it as well, shows us that God loved us and gave himself up for us. He died and rose again and now lives to intercede. He has made a way for us to know him and to love him and to glorify him, which is man's primary purpose. So in our mixed condition, this condition that we believers are in now, how do we take care of my new heart? God has given us a new heart. He's taken that heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. Well, how do I take care of that now? Have you ever thought, if I'm a believer made new by Christ, why is there still sin in my heart? Am I really a believer? Well, it's because of this mixed condition. Christ paid the penalty for sin so that the power of sin was broken, but the presence of sin remains in my heart. And so I fight to destroy sin in me. And I do this by drawing near to God through his word. Psalm 119, 9 through 11 is a great example of this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. And do you notice that it's not just any kind of spiritual experience? He says, don't let me wander from your commandments. Why? Because my heart needs you, and you revealed there in your commandments. In verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. The psalmist understood that the only way not to sin against the Lord, who loves him, is to treasure God's word. He esteems the word. He values it. It's what he values. There's nothing more precious to him. God's provision is for our good. Get this heart near your, I'm sorry, get this word, yeah, near your heart. And then he said, in in the scripture, that he's the one who's going to do the work. Jesus' intent is that God's word needs to be in full contact with our heart. Jesus is the one who takes away sin and makes us new in the inner man. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 tells us why. Why is it? God's word, the provision for our heart. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's God's design for us with his word, that it would come near to our hearts, and that we would allow him to use it as a surgical tool 
Allow it to reveal the thoughts and intentions going on inside my heart. It's the only way we will ever be able to discern what is going on in our hearts because we are deceived. You see that deceivability is still in the mixed condition man, still in our heart. The word must be in full contact with our hearts continually, constantly. We need to realign our hearts and minds with his words. What happens when you don't read your Bible for a day or two or maybe even a week? Or you read your Bible, but you forget to or you fail to engage with the Lord through his word. Will we naturally grow spiritually? Not at all. God's word is his provision. His good provision for our hearts. What is different is that this new inner man now has a capacity because of what Christ has done. To know him, and to love him, to pursue him, and to obey him, even a desire for him comes from him. But he tells us we still have to watch over our heart. It's our Wellspring verse, Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Did you catch that for earlier from Jeremiah 179? The heart is desperately wicked above all else. And Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. So the point, if we understand who Christ is, I'm sorry, who, we, who Christ is, who we are in Christ, what he's made us into, if we understand the nature of this inner man, our heart, then we are going to recognize our need for the word of God. More than we need anything else in the world, we will treasure it. We need to bring our inner man near God's word continually, constantly. And we need to do that prayerfully and worshipfully in a way that's dependent on him to reveal himself through us, through his word. And now we're going to look at what this providing for my heart, this heart shepherding looks like. What does that even mean? You might still be working on understanding what that means or a deeper understanding. That's okay. We want to learn from one another. I know when I first came to Wellspring, I had no idea. I had no idea. And I continue to learn as I go. And it can be helpful to try to come up some other ways that we'd say heart shepherding. We might say instead, living a gospel transformed lives, guarding my heart throughout the day. You might ask your sister in Christ, how is your heart? What are you doing with your heart today? How is your heart responding to this circumstance? How are you directing your thoughts? I need to pay attention to this heart, how it responds to circumstances. If you and I come away from our quiet time, our devotions, and we close up our Bible and put away our journals and we leave them till tomorrow, same place, same time, we've missed the whole of shepherding our hearts. Shepherding is more than doing devotions or checking off our read-through-the-Bible charts. Shepherding is engaging with the God of the Word. It is preaching the gospel to myself and renewing my mind. This time set aside is to renew my mind with Scripture and to worship the Lord of all. We ought to be awed by God in the Scripture and lose sight of ourselves. We ought to never leave our time with the Lord, not having worshipped him. I need to be reminded, don't you? 
Shepherding my heart is not only about meeting with my Savior each day, bringing my heart near His Word, but it's a continual and constant caring for, guarding, and directing my heart. It's cultivating a right view of God so that I learn to trust Him and His perfect plan for my life. Caring for my heart is recognizing and repenting of sin throughout the day and being mindful of and thankful for God and His care for me. And the list goes on and on. I can't do this apart from Scripture. Left to my own, I will wander. So we're going to dig a little deeper this morning in our discovery. So we have reviewed why we must shepherd our heart quickly, because in our mixed condition, our hearts are deceived, and we cannot know our hearts without letting God use his word to bring light to what is there. So to pursue holiness, we must guard our hearts, and we must pursue holiness. How is this meeting with the Lord meant to affect my life, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, and year by year? The gospel realities cause my heart to worship the Lord for all that he has done because of his great love for me. The gospel realities are exactly what my heart needs to hear when I have sin in my heart. If what I've read isn't affecting my life beyond my quiet time, I must examine why that's true or not true. If I say that I've shepherded my heart, I've been in the word, but then I live the way I choose, there's a disconnect somewhere. And we're not talking about perfection, but if I have a life characterized by these things, I may not be shepherding my heart well. We are sinners saved by grace. And we want to be women whose lives have been transformed by the gospel. So how does this happen? And we get look again to our wellspring purpose. Our aim is to get God and more and more of him. He's given us everything we need here to know him more fully so that we can glorify him more effectively. And maybe what a privilege it would be in that pursuit of Christ that others might see a life that has been changed and they'd be drawn to Christ. Let your light so shine that others may see your good works and glorify the Father who's in heaven. So again, we see this caring for our hearts is not just for ourselves. God uses our lives to bring others to himself. Our love for God affects others. Haven't you been in small group, either here on Saturday morning or during the week, and encouraged by other women as they share their struggles and how they are feeding their hearts? I constantly am. Just a few weeks ago, I asked the question to a sister and said, how's your week? And she said, I've had some hard days and I've had some good days, but I know that God cares for me. And you know, those few words and just that quick little interaction reminded me that God cares for me when I'm having a difficult time too. That's a small example of discipline three. It, it impacted my heart. So we must be diligent to make the connection between time in the Word and the rest of the day, keeping watch over our hearts. So let's say that you have been diagnosed with heart disease. The doctor has prescribed a prescription, and you're faithful to take that pill every morning without fail. You wouldn't think of missing your medication even for one day. Your health depends upon it. However, after taking your daily pill to help with heart disease, would you then consider continuing to eat the food the doctor has told you is detrimental to your heart? 
If you want to protect your heart against this disease, you'll watch carefully what you eat. So in the same way, as I am in the Word of God, when I'm meeting with the Lord, that's very, very important. It's vital to the condition of my spiritual heart. And what I do with this heart the rest of the day is also very, very important. See, I can take my pill in the morning, I can meet with God, and forget about Him all the rest of the day. I can feed my heart junk by what I listen to, or what I read, or what I think on, anything that's contrary to God's will for me. Or I can get careless or confident. So now I think I can trust myself, so I take a half a pill, or maybe I become inconsistent with my time with the Lord, because I think my heart's doing okay. Remember that also that the reading plan is a tool. It's not in itself the shepherding of my heart. One shouldn't be able to think they're shepherding their heart if they've read their assigned Bible reading, but they're not dealing with their sin throughout the day, or their thoughts of God are not accurate. It's continual if throughout the day. So we are shepherds over our hearts. So we're going to take a look at shepherds. We all know that shepherds don't care for their sheep only in the morning, right? You don't care for your children only in the morning and let them on their own the rest of the day. Shepherds need to tend throughout the day. Sheep need constant care. So here are some synonyms of shepherding. To coach, counsel. This is maybe where you want to write in the back where they got caught up. <laughs> I'll change that for next year. Coach, counsel, lead, mentor, pilot, guide, show, tutor. So if you go to the concordance, and there's a great online tool called Blue Letter Bible. If you type in blb.org, it's easy to use, and you can just type in shepherd or sheep, and you're going to find a great description of what those shepherds are, either literally, like shepherds who care for sheep, or figuratively, describing a person's role over another, or a heart. We can find the biblical definition in the Strong's Concordance. Again, that's on Blue Letter Bible. And it says this about shepherds. To feed, to tend a flock, keep sheep, to rule or govern, to furnish pasture for food, to nourish, to cherish one's body, to serve the body. And this one comes closest to what we mean by discipline in discipline one. To supply what is required for the soul's need. So think about your heart, shepherding. To supply what is required for the soul's need. But the most helpful way to understand what, sh what shepherd means is to look in the Word of God. And we, when we do, we're going to find out how very descriptive it is. So we're going to look at some good shepherds first. Good shepherds guard. And they tend to the sheep. They do it voluntarily, and they do it with eagerness. They rule. They lead. They gather. They feed. Good shepherds are faithful. They train to walk in and keep and observe God's word. They sacrifice for and protect. And they dispel fear. And that's what we're aiming for when we shepherd our hearts. To faithfully and eagerly guard, lead, feed, and train our hearts to obey God's word. To supply what is required 
for the soul's need. You see, if you or I are faithful, let's say, about finances, and we're in his word, and as we're reading, we see that God loved me so much that he sent Christ to pay the penalty for my sin. I couldn't pay that on my own. God met my greatest need in salvation. I can surely trust him now for my every need. We don't have to fear because we know our shepherd. We know his character is to provide for every need. He promises it. Because I know him and who he is, I can trust. And when my heart fears, I can know without a doubt my trust has been misplaced. I'm trusting my own wisdom, my own understanding, following my own heart. Well, in contrast to good shepherds, listen what the word says about bad shepherds. They have no understanding. They haven't sought the Lord. They haven't prospered. Their flocks scatter. Their fields are ruined and trampled down. They actually destroy the sheep. They don't attend to them, and they lead the sheep astray. Bad shepherds sleep when they should keep watch. They have no pity. They're worthless. They actually leave the flock. Bad shepherds are foolish. They don't care for the perishing. They don't seek the scattered. They don't heal the broken. They actually devour the sheep. Well, in God's word, his people, us, are described as sheep. Sheep with no shepherd are described. Yeah, so... We're his sheep, but sheep with no shepherd are described as afflicted, distressed, and discouraged. It does a sheep no good to have a bad shepherd or to be unshepherded. There's no protection from affliction or distressed or being discouraged. There's no sustenance or healing for brokenness. That's a very dangerous place for a sheep, and that's a very dangerous place for our hearts. Do you see the connection? Psalm 23 informs us that the Lord is my shepherd, and he is good. And so our part in shepherding our heart is to bring the heart to the good shepherd, to Jesus, so that we might receive the shepherding care for us. We've looked at the description of the good shepherd and the bad shepherd. Now let's look at some descriptions of the sheep about us. They're the dumbest of animals. They're helpless. And they're timid. They require constant attention and meticulous care. They will go the wrong way, unaware of the dangers at hand. They've actually nibbled themselves right off the side of a mountain. They'll eat or drink things that are disastrous to them. Then they easily fall prey. They can become cast down. Do you know that if a sheep ends up on its back, they panic and they'll actually die there. They can't put themselves right back up a good shepherd there to care for them. Praise God. We all were like sheep who had gone astray. Each of us had turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Praise be to God. So we continue on with this heart shepherding. Remember our pill for our heart disease? We've taken our daily pill, but we don't want to eat junk junk food all the rest of the day. We train ourselves to stop and to turn in a different direction in our thinking using God's word. We guard our hearts. Here's an example maybe of how we would use the word when we were to sin, when we sin. 
Watch for the elements of confession and sin and rehearsing the gospel realities. This is a practical way we can shepherd or direct our hearts, care for them. So let's say you've had a really busy week and you are exhausted. You fall into bed each night knowing tomorrow you'll wake again for a very full day. Your heart is feeling weak. Finally, you have a day at home. You're looking forward to quiet, not getting in the car, and you settle in. For some, maybe your kids are napping all at the same time. Your expectations for your quiet afternoon at home. Well, your husband's working today. He's had a busier week than you. You're ready to take a long-needed rest, and he calls, and he's forgotten something, and he can't leave the office. He's called his helpmate. His helpmate, however, is angry. Angry, her plans and expectations have just exploded. Selfishness rears its ugly head. Pride says that you have a right to the rest of this day. All kinds of things race through your mind. None of them good. I'm entitled to this. I deserve a break. What we see in this example is just the leaves on the tree. It's the visible. But what you don't see is the root of the tree, the root of this sin and anger. We must be diligent to dig deeper to see where this sin's root is. Sin is never in isolation. Sin always has a companion. The sin I first recognize is just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much to this sin that lies far beneath the surface. I might speak unkindly to my husband or my roommate, but I dig deeper. And I find out I'm angry, and deeper still, I'm selfish and self-focused. I want what I want. I desire pleasure more than I desire to please the Lord or to please my husband. What's going on in my heart when I'm disrespectful or talk unkindly to another? There's lack of love, a lack of love for God and his righteousness, and a lack of love for the one whom I have been impatient. We're saying, I want what I want, and you're not serving me in this. Right now, I want to be king. There is love for my own pleasure. I'm not following God's command, as in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. I'm to look not only to my own interests, but to the interests of others. At the root of pride, at the root of this is pride. I deserve better than this. We are actually saying, I don't trust this circumstance to be, by, to be best for me, God. You're not enough for me. I don't like your plan for my day. Wow, such pride. Do you see how digging deeper to uncover the root is so helpful? As those of us who have been chosen by God, we've been given the power to respond biblically because of the cross. We have new desires. Don't give in to defeat. Christ has paid the penalty and the power of sin is broken, so we fight against this presence of sin. And we call to mind again, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. So this is how we might preach the gospel to ourselves in that example. And here's just one example of many in scripture. James 1, 19 and 20. So maybe I have read this in my time with the Lord in the morning, or I've memorized it and God calls it back to mind, or I just know that I need to go to God's word in that moment and look into it. 
So I read yep, James Somebody want to read it for me? What? For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Through 20? That is 20. Oh, how about 19? I'm sorry, 19 and 20. Oh, I'm sorry. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Okay. So then I would use this to pray through. Lord, my anger has not produced the righteousness that you have required. I have not lived and put Christ's righteousness on display this morning. I've loved myself more than I have loved you. I have loved pleasure more than I've loved your righteousness. I know you sent Christ to suffer my sin. You've bled and you've died for me. Your righteousness is precious. And I've trampled upon it in this moment of anger. Father, forgive me. I'm thankful for your paying the penalty for my sin. I have been declared righteous. You have loved me. I have no power to walk without anger or impatience or pride apart from you. Lord, help me to be eager to go to those whom I've sinned against and eager to continue to kill sin in my heart. You have brought your wayward heart near to God and shepherded it through his word and remembered what Christ has done for you on the cross and transformed your mind once again with this truth. And you step out again anew and fresh. When we do sin, we ask ourselves the following questions to keep, to help battle and thus kill sin in my heart. Number one, how does God feel about my sin? So that's on your second page. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And Ephesians 5.6, The wrath of God is upon the sons of disobedience. How does God feel about my sin? It says his wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. His wrath is upon the sons of disobedience. Well, what did God do about my sin? Sin is a huge deal. But what God did for me about my sin is an even bigger deal. I must know the gospel realities or I will despair. And the Christian life is not meant to be lived in despair. We walk in newness of life. I can look at scripture or look at this brochure and be reminded of gospel realities, and I must. What's my responsibility? Get my heart near to his word. Well, what did God do about my sin? We read in Romans 4 or 5, Christ has justified the ungodly. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What are the results of what God did about my sin? Romans 5, 9 says we are saved from the wrath of God. And Ephesians 2, 5, we are made alive with Christ and we are new creatures. We were far off, but we have been brought near. We have been adopted and not only adopted, we are now co-heirs with Christ. 
So we've just preached the gospel to our heart again. You will be encouraged in God's love for you as you search for truths like this to proclaim to your heart. And if you need help, call a sister in Christ. So each day, perhaps many times throughout the day, for sure, we go to God's word and we get alone with God. There are so many distractions in our day that fight our attention to be sure. Little children, cell phones, Facebook, Instagram, all of them, right? So many things that clamor for our attention. But I know that I'm responsible to bring this heart of mine to the word of God so that he can search my heart, do surgery, or to lift my burdens as I sit and meditate on him. Maybe you can't sit, maybe it's on the go, but do what you can, fight for him. We all face temptations. I'm tempted also to respond unkindly or to judge another's motives. The list is endless. God has provided his words so that we can be prepared to fight the temptation before it even comes. Decide how to handle a temptation before you're faced with it. Proverbs 22.3 says, The prudent sees the evil and hides himself. Temptation is definitely easier to face if we've decided in advance how we're going to handle it. If you're prone to anger or impatience with those who interrupt your plans for the day, whatever it might be, be prepared knowing it's going to come again. The possibility of that temptation is going to come again. And we're diligent in training our hearts and shepherding them with the Word of God. We're going to find that we're responding more rightly, more often, by His grace. And what you do, what do you do with a Mommy, as you train your little children, if you remember, um, or to walk on their own or to feed themselves or to sleep even, you repeat the process over and over again. And it's the same for our hearts. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may endure it. A plan for biblical response of temptation might include the following. One, recognize and acknowledge that you are being tempted as early and as soon as you can. Quickly ask God for help to resist. He is our ever-present help in time of trouble. Three, if possible, remove yourself immediately from the source of temptation. Make no provision for the flesh. Have your phone in another room while you're in his word. Or if you lack self-control over eating your favorite dessert, don't have it in the house. Remove all temptation. Number four, identify the unbiblical desire that would be served by yielding to the temptation. Self-love, self-centeredness, pride, greed. Five, quote and meditate on appropriate scripture. So that's a call for us all to memorize scripture. Write it on a card and memorize it pertaining to that specific temptation that seems to come up in you. Six, remind yourself of God's presence, his power, and his promises. Seven, reflect on the purpose of Christ's death. He has freed me from the power over sin and purchased me that I might glorify him. So will this glorify God if I choose to pursue this temptation? Or any temptation, the way I said that. Remember, temptation is not sin, but it is the threshold into sin. Number eight, mentally and verbally make a commitment to do the godly thing. 
Next, get busy with a mind-engaging, godly activity. Serve another. Spend time praying. Ten, call a godly friend and ask for help. And you notice this is much after you have sought the Lord on your own. It's so easy for us to pick up the phone and call our sister in Christ and talk through it all. We must be seeking the Lord first, praying, asking for help. He is all sufficient for our need. And then you can call a friend later on. Number 11, repeat key aspects of this temptation until the power of temptation is reduced, or better yet, gone. Since change is usually a process rather than an event, people often experience setbacks in their efforts to kill sin in their lives. Yet sometimes that takes us by surprise. We ought not to be surprised by it. The key is humbling myself again and again before the Lord in repentance. And when we get up off our knees, stepping out anew in obedience. Repentance is an ongoing lifestyle, and we as believers live in a repenting attitude. And we have a merciful Father. So what do I do with my heart when I do sin? Well, I'm going to call unbiblical desires and thoughts, feelings and actions what God does. Sin. And I'm going to use biblical terms. I'm not going to say I'm annoyed. God doesn't talk about annoying. He talks about anger. And I'm not frustrated, but I'm impatient. Do you see? Take full responsibility for my sin. Do not blame shift. I'm going to confess the sin both to God and to others who I might have hurt by my sin. Ask God for help. Remind myself what Christ has done and is doing in my life. Reflect on the benefits available to believers in Christ. And maybe you quickly need to grab your transformation chart and uh, spend a couple of minutes looking there. Meditate on God's promises of forgiveness and deliverance from the power of sin. Accurately evaluate the changes that, you, that have already occurred and the progress that has been made. Thank the Lord. Be encouraged by his faithfulness in the past. Learn from failure by briefly examining what you did that you should not have done and what you did not do that you should have done. Back up and consider your heart before the sin. Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility comes before honor. The presence of destruction in my life is caused to evaluate the influence of pride, what it might have had in this failure. Was I proud before this sin? How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. It says in Proverbs 28:14. Well, the presence of calamity is an opportunity to evaluate the hardness or the softness of my heart. What was it? What was the condition of my heart? Was my heart hard? Well, then I want to make restitution if necessary. Purpose to put the past behind me in a biblical way and resume our effort to change in a godly manner. Planning is important, but planning alone will accomplish nothing. For a plan to be effective, it must be put into practice, and practice we must. James 1.22 says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not mirrors only, 
who delude themselves. Here's a stern warning against looking into God's word without it impacting our lives. James says we're to receive the word implanted and to prove ourselves to be doers of the word, not mirrors, merely hearers only who delete, delude or deceive themselves. And so that means my heart shepherding must be 24 7, 365 days, no holidays, no vacations. We press on to make this true. Having soaked ourselves in the realities of the gospel, we're much better equipped to recognize the temptation for what it is and to turn away from it by reminding ourselves of truths such as, in Christ, I have the freedom and power not to sin. I'm no longer sin slave. I'm a slave to righteousness. The gospel informs me that I'm the chief of sinners and the least of saints. And this drives me to regard others with humility and not trust my first assessment of the situation because my heart deceives me. The gospel enables me to love and love hopes all things. I can listen and better understand what's going on rather than jumping to conclusions and judging motives. Well, I've stumbled a thousand times into anger or self-indulgence or fear. Maybe you've confessed it and you've prayed about it. You have memorized it. And you've battled hard. And yet still, there you go again. Well, why? What is this sin telling me? Let's go to 2 Peter 1, where we find hope and help in this. I'll let you get there. This is really, really helpful. Really <coughs> helpful and helpful. I'm going to read right now through um, uh, verse 8. So listen as I go. 2 Peter 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, set so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Second Peter encourages the study of God's word, which then encourages God's people in holiness as they put its teaching into practice. Satan in the garden questioned Adam and Eve, asking, did God really say that? Well, Christian are to fight Satan's snares by going back to scriptures and by regulating their lives according to his word. We focus on the lasting grace of Christ and the salvation which he brings. You and I can stand on the finished work of the cross. 
We have been saved by God, from God, and to God. Remember, because this was because of this, we are no longer our own, but we've been bought with a price, the very blood of Christ. He now enables us to live gospel-transformed lives. But we have to battle this to fight in our sanctification, battle against sin, and battle for Christ. Peter begins the chapter by describing what God has done for the believer. In verse 1, he's given us faith by his own righteousness. Continuing on, he multiplies grace and peace to us through our knowledge of him. He's granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through his power and through our knowledge of him. He's granted us his precious and magnificent promises so that by him we may partake in the divine nature. That is, we become more like Jesus and we escape the corruption of the world, sin. Because of all the God-given blessings, the believer cannot be indifferent or self-satisfied. Such an abundance of divine grace calls for total dedication. We're called to be diligent. That means making maximum effort. The Christian life is not lived to the honor of God without effort. Even though God has poured his divine power into the believer, the Christian himself is required to make every disciplined effort alongside of what Christ has done. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and with trembling. Remember, God could have saved us and made us perfect at salvation, but he's left us in a mixed condition to bring greater glory to himself. And so this call to be diligent on our part. God has given us faith and all the graces necessary for godliness in verses 3 and 4. We generously add to those by our diligent devotion to personal righteousness. Our first protection against corrupting influences from within is a commitment to that godliness which God's work in Christ has made possible for us. Peter calls on us to make every effort in verse 5, to develop qualities that reflect God's nature. And those qualities, you see, are faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Such qualities, he says in verse 8, will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has supplied us with faith, and so now in that faith, we diligently supply all kinds of godly characters. And verse 9, he goes on. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. This is so helpful. This is, that means he's not diligently supplying self-control or love or the other qualities. It says he lacks these qualities. That person is blind or short-sighted. Why? This is so helpful. He has forgotten his purification from his former sins. So we ask ourselves, what does this sin tell me? What does my lack of self-control tell me? What does my lack of love tell me? It tells me that I have lost sight of what Christ has done for me on the cross. I'm short-sighted. All I can think about is me and my circumstances and how this affects me. I'm forgetting that Jesus died for my sin because he loved me. Not because there was anything good in me. 
I'm forgiven and I'm cleansed and I'm free. I'm not sin slave anymore. I belong to Jesus. And he's given me everything I need for life and godliness through my knowledge of him. I so need to be reminded of this. And so 2 Peter 1 shows us that one essential weapon against sin is to remember, to remember what Christ has done, who I am in Christ, and how desperately I need him. Apart from Christ, I can do no good thing. Remember, remember, remember again the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we pray and remind ourselves throughout the day, I've been cleansed. I'm not a slave to anger or fear or impatience. Remembering what he has done on my behalf and the benefits that are now mine are essential. We begin this remembering in our time with the Lord in the morning and we carry it with us throughout the day. We remind our hearts and we remind others of his grace and mercy that is now ours as those who belong to Christ. It's so easy to forget, isn't it? Remembering when perhaps I'm sinned against by my friend or my husband or co-worker, I can stop and I can think on these things. You know, she has also been redeemed, and this sin has been paid for by Christ. The sin against me, Christ has paid for. Or maybe he hasn't been saved, and I recall the gospel and remember who I was before Christ saved me. I was lost. I had no hope. I was in opposition to Christ. I lived for my own self just as this one is now, and I'm humbled, and I forgive by God's grace. And if I'm holding sin against this one whom Christ has redeemed, who Christ has paid the penalty for, this very sin, I'm not viewing her as Christ does. I have no right to hold this sin against her when Christ does not, and he doesn't treat me as my sins deserve. However, I can think rightly, and I can remember they are no longer slaves to unrighteousness, as I am not. And I extend grace and mercy, and I forgive as Christ has forgiven me. Do you see how the gospel transforms our relationships? My response is better display him as I fight for personal holiness. So we've seen that shepherding my heart is a constant and continual discipline. We have seen that heart shepherding is to supply what is required of the soul's need. <coughs> to faithfully and eagerly guard, to lead, to feed, to train my heart to obey God's word, to dispel fear from my heart by drawing near to God, and to know God and his character and love for us. I hope you're encouraged. I hope you have a better understanding. If you don't, we're here for one another. Please ask your sister in Christ. It's worth fighting for. He is good. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are the good shepherd. And you lead us beside still waters. You feed our hearts. You feed our souls. Your staff, they comfort us. You lead us. Your rod Lead us by your word. God, we are humbled because we were lost sheep, living our own way, desiring our own things, desiring to be our own God. 
And yet in that state, while we were still sinners, you saved us. And Lord, now you have called us to glorify your name in all that we do, to magnify you, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, glorify you. So Lord, I pray that you will take these words and that you might um, draw us near to you. I pray that we have greater desire, that we have a better understanding of who you are and your character. You are loving and you are kind and against your own you have no admixture of any evil against us. You have only love and compassion and forgiveness for us. What an amazing truth. What an amazing love you have for us. Pray that we be transformed as we grow to know you, to know your character, to know your word. Thank you that you've given us your word in order to know you better, to better glorify you, to know how to live that pleases you, to remind us of the truth of the gospel, of your good news. Where we just love you and we just want to glorify you. Will you help us? We are weak and we are feeble, but you are all sufficient. And we praise your name because you hear us and because you care for us so very well. I pray that in our small group time today, Lord, that we would be open with one another, that we would share the struggles we have, the battle against sin that we're fighting, and that we might encourage one another with the gospel truths, with your word. For your word alone is our hope and stay. You alone are all that we need and all that we have. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.